0: From the EPR Creations studio, this is Jason Staples, bringing you Unconquered with Doc Staples. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by EPR Creations, by Lewis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, by Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, by Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and by my newest advertising partner, Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage. As always, information's in the show notes. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast with Doc Staples. All right, well, it's time to talk recruiting. I don't do that as much these days before early signing day for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that with all the flips and all the different things that happen at the last minute, you you spend a lot of time potentially talking about guys that just don't wind up in the, in the class. So I've been doing a lot more these days of waiting until, uh, until are signees and then doing some evaluation there. I am going to do some more thorough evaluation of the class than this initial reaction episode. This is sort of a hot takes episode for the, uh, early signing day. And then, uh, we'll, we'll reconvene for some more detailed looks at this, but Until then, going to do this Hot Takes episode on early signing day, a.k.a. find out where players are going to transfer out from uh, day. (laughs) I mean, keep in mind, half, if not more than half, of the players who signed today will transfer within three years. (laughs) That's That's where we are right now. So as important as high school recruiting remains in a lot of respects, it's not as important as it used to be for that reason. Uh, a large number of the players who who signed in these various places are going to be gone in, in within two to three years. Half of the players in each of these classes is just not going to be there, and that's something to consider. Now, it, the best classes, the ones who've done the best job of evaluating and finding the fit, and there by the way was a really good uh, article in the Athletic with um, Peterson, the former coach of uh, of Washington and before that Boise, talking about how his recruiting approach was. Not just to look for talent, but he put so much emphasis on uh OKGs, our kind of guys, in terms of uh getting guys that he felt were a fit with the way that he ran his program. And that is something that reminded me a lot of, of Mike Norvell and his approach here. But in any case, you know, even with that, you're still expecting a lot of transfers to come out of this. So keep that in mind as we go through. Nevertheless, still a lot of Florida State fans a little hurt and disappointed by Uh, The close of signing day obviously uh, had hoped that a couple of the really big fish would wind up in this class that didn't. Most notably, uh, Jeremiah Smith, who, you know, generational wide receiver, probably the best wide receiver to come out since maybe Julio Jones, somebody like that. And that's really your comp is Julio Jones. He's that kind of player. Uh, There was, there was some hope in Tallahassee that he might flip from Ohio state late. And I think looking at things in hindsight, I think Jeremiah, despite giving a lot of positive feedback to, to Florida state through the whole process, I think ultimately he was going to go to, to Ohio state. He knew where he wanted to go. And ultimately I think he was trying, he tried to drive up the price, uh, maybe at, a certain point during earlier on, maybe he, he did really strongly consider Florida State in, the, in in this, maybe early in the year. I don't know. But I think by the end of the year, he knew where he was going to go. And I think by the time you got to today, uh, the effort was to try to get as much as he could in, in NIL from Ohio State. I think that's why you saw Miami sneak into the process late there. That's Miami of Florida uh, sneak into the process late there. I don't think he strongly considered actually going to Miami, but I do think Miami was willing to bid up further and maybe give a little bit more incentive to Ohio state to raise the, uh, to raise the NIL offer. And And I think that's what he was ultimately going for. He was going to go there and, and that's what that is. I mean, they did a great job recruiting him, but ultimately, you know, you're not going to get the number one player in the country a whole lot. That's just the way that it is. Uh, and then, you know, of course the more disappointing one, On on that front, in terms of the you know top player at their position type guys, it's KJ Bolden, and Bolden is a guy that was committed to Florida State for a good a good bit, and then signing day flipped to Georgia, and then to add insult to injury, says, yeah, you know, I knew I was going to go to Georgia about three weeks ago, uh, and you know, a lot of people not real happy that Florida State didn't close on on that guy, and and again, it's the third signing day in a row with a guy that that you felt like was going to be in the Florida state class that I think the coaching staff felt really good coming into the week that he was going to be in the class and the third year in a row where really you're, you're arguably your top recruit winds up not signing. And and that's a bad look. I mean, the optics of it are bad. There's no question about that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend that that's not the case that said I did get some good information on this one uh, at the end here. And Ultimately, Florida State wasn't going to get K.J. Bolden simply because of the confluence of some other factors. And I'll just put it this way. Florida State was not going to pay that much past market in terms of the NIL that was going to be needed for K.J. Bolden to wind up on campus. And they should not have. Bottom line is that if a program is willing to pay that much beyond market in NIL, you can't chase it. You just can't. You can't do that and sustain your locker room, sustain the overall program that you're that you're trying to build. You can't do it. And the other factor here is Dylan Rayola. And what what ended up happening there is Nebraska for Dylan Rayola, who's obviously one of the top two or three quarterback prospects in the, in the country and a Nebraska legacy, Nebraska basically broke the market for Dylan Rayola to flip him from Georgia. They offered an insane NIL. And yes, I know, you know, you're not supposed to NIL's not supposed to be inducement or whatever. Everybody knows what's happening now. Come on, let's not pretend. And, we have a very good idea of what that number is because Nebraska's head coach went public in a press conference talking about the number that would be needed to land a top level quarterback in Lincoln. He explicitly said that it would take $2 million for Nebraska to land a top tier quarterback. And then a little bit later shortly after that they landed dylan rayola and that's that's kind of all i'm going to say about that one and <laughs> georgia was not willing ultimately to match or exceed the number that that nebraska put on the put on rayola which is frankly a crazy number and that ultimately, this is where the, the confluence of factors comes in. And frankly, Florida State has not been able to catch a break in a while. I mean, you go back to the the broken leg for Jordan Travis when that happened to Georgia losing in the SEC championship game in a close game determined in part by a bad call on the field where if they'd reviewed that and it hadn't, hadn't been a completion, Georgia may well win that game and Florida State's in the playoff. Well, Georgia loses that game, and then Florida State winds up out of the playoff, which impacts recruiting, impacts all sorts of other things. I mean, think about the turd sandwich that Mike Norvell was handed there in terms of what he's had to deal with as a coach the last couple weeks. I mean, he's got to go immediately on the road and recruit, and yet he's got an entire team of hurting players on his roster that he's got to be there for as well. But he can't be there because he's in town, or he's out of town, that is. He's not in town. He can't be there for that. So he's got to do all of that remotely and do it as much as he can when he's in town, while he's trying to recruit guys into the program from high school and then bring guys into the portal. And, you know, that's a sensitive thing where you're bringing guys into the portal and there's a bunch of guys that are already, you know, sensitive about the situation and being left out of the playoff. And, you know, what does it tell them when you're anyway, it's, it's a tough situation. He's paid well for it, no doubt, but that's a tough situation. And then you add that to this where because Georgia's quarterback gets flipped with an absurd number, all of a sudden Georgia has a bunch of budget for their NIL collective for this recruiting class that is now free. They can reallocate that and suddenly they can revisit some in-state prospects like a KJ Bolden and start to uh, determine what, what they would be willing to pay beyond the market for him since they have some beyond the market money that just came open because of Rayola transferring. So and you know they kicked they kicked the tires on Luke Cromanhook I mean Georgia revisited him once Rayola was gone, just to just to see, just to see. But Florida State was able to hold Cromanhook and that was a much more important player in their class. Uh they were able to hold Georgia off for Cromanhook but but ultimately with the extra uh the difference there from Rayola being reallocated was a significant change down the stretch for Florida state. And that's not something you really, you can anticipate. And, you know, I got a bunch of questions via Twitter, Patreon, wherever asking, you know, should Florida state just change their recruiting approach and stop going after some of these guys? No, you've still got to recruit them. You still got to go after a guy like KJ Bolden and you still almost had him. And if he happens to transfer, at some point, that's where, you know, he, you, you put yourself in in position to potentially be the next uh, the next stopping place. Just like happened with M- Marvin Jones Jr., who is a huge get for Florida State in the transfer portal. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But again, the thing you have to remember is that early signing day or just signing guys out of high school is not the end of the process at this point. There are going to be guys that are going to... that. Florida state was in on at this point that didn't go to Florida state that in two, three years are going to be on the roster. They're going to be guys that they landed that are not going to be on a roster in two, two to three years. That's just the nature of the beast now. So you have to consider that. Another thing that you have to consider is if, and I've, I saw a bunch of criticism from folks about the battles End, uh the, the collective uh, headed at least publicly by Ingram Smith. It's a, it's a much bigger team than that. And Uh, I saw people, you know, well, what's the point of the battle's end if if they can't be competitive for guys like KJ Bolden? I'm just going to say. I understand the frustration, but the battle's end has done an amazing job. And I'm not saying that they're beyond criticism, but. I'm just saying that the people who are doing the criticizing don't really understand all the factors in play. Don't understand what the battles end has actually been able to do. Don't understand the numbers in play. And if you did see the numbers that were put on the board for someone like KJ Bolden for, uh, for Smith, for, for JJ, you're, you're going to make that you're going to make those calls and say, yeah, you, you have, you have to do what they did. I mean, the bottom line is the goal of the battle's end is to help Florida State, as all collectives are trying to do with all of, their, of the teams that they support, field the most competitive overall roster that they can. And that's going to start with elite players for sure, but you can't spend a sixth of your whole budget in terms of NIL on one player, especially a high school player. You can't spend a quarter of your budget on another guy. You've got to actually allocate this wisely across an entire locker room, across a bunch of starters, and you have to do that carefully, partly because if you bring in an unproven freshman out of high school and he's making six times what anybody else on your roster is making or you know, 10 times what anybody else on your roster is making, think about what that does to your locker room. You've got to be smart about how all of this is handled and you've got to essentially have your have some awareness of what the market is and i think the battle's end has done a really good job of understanding what the market is and what i mean by market is what what are guys getting in nil at other places and being competitive with the realistic market and you can't outbid everybody if somebody wants to pay an absurd amount for one guy and one school just wants to blow out the market for that you can't outbid everybody who wants to do that for anybody that you're in on you just can't and you know that's they've made some some very good decisions in terms of how to allocate how to evaluate what they're what they're doing in this and frankly folks should should uh <laughs> folks need to trust them a little bit more and honestly if you want fsu to be more competitive in that space then you're going to need to have that. Essentially the battles end is going to need more people. They had what 900 people. Uh, in the battles end, in terms of membership toward in the second, what the second third of the season, they were still under a thousand. They didn't hit over 1500 until after the ACC championship game. I mean, they're at 5,000 now, but let's be honest. If Florida state wants to compete in the NIL space with, with your top tier teams, that 5,000 needs to be closer to 20,000. If you're talking about being able to decide that you want to go well above market once in a while, like super above market, like has happened. If you want to be able to do that, then you're going to need to go to, you know, not not double what they have now. They're going to need to go triple or quadruple what they have now. I'm aware of how many people are in some of these other collectives at places like Tennessee and Georgia and and Texas A&M and the kind of numbers that that you're looking at. So, you know, I saw some people, you know, basically ripping into, into all of that. And, and my response to that is, to be honest, the only way to change that is they need more people who are doing it. Now, I'm not saying that you should do that. I, I'm not because, you know, that's that's a, a, an individual financial decision. Uh, You know, people have different priorities in their lives. And for a lot of us, college football and paying for our, our program, our, you know, our alma mater to win games is not something that, that is a priority in terms of the budget of our household. And that's perfectly fair. And if that's where you are, I'm right with you. But for those of you who are boosters and who are, you know, more invested in in that, in terms of, of all of that, that's where the reality is that, that the battles end in particular needs more support. And the only way that's going to happen is if more people sign up at higher levels and wind up and, and stick with those with that giving over a longer period of time so that they can build a war chest. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, And yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into more, more of that, but I mean, that's just the reality of where the college game is at this point. The reality is that college football has become, and and it always has been to some degree, because this was all done, I mean, guys, this was being done under the table before it was brought into the open. Now, the numbers have gotten bigger because of it coming into the open uh, and because more people are are aware of it and are willing to donate, but there were big numbers before too. But the reality is, uh, and the other factor of this too, is that the transfer portal has changed all of this. But again, the reality here in college football is that we are now watching a sport where it's like the, it's imagine the NFL had free agency, unrestricted free agency every season. So players can change teams between every season. Nobody has to be on any team two years in a row. So you've got unrestricted free agency, (laughs) but the contracts are not public. So nobody knows how much anybody is making. Aside from people, you know, kind of digging that out from sources, you know, behind the scenes. But the, the contracts aren't public, nor can they be public. And it's all crowdfunded. <laughs> so you donate to, you know, basically people who are gonna handle things on, on behalf of the NFL team, and then they're gonna do their best to sign guys that they can, and then you're gonna get change every year as guys switch rosters and chase more money and and so on. That's where things are in college football right now. It's absolutely insane. It is bonkers that this is where things are. And ultimately they're going to have to resolve this by doing what the NCAA has resisted for a really, really long time. And that's, this is why you saw the NCAA president, the new NCAA president say, yeah, there needs to be a break off where you're going to have contracts and, you know, your revenue sport guys are going to be, your revenue sport uh, athletes at these schools are going to be making making money under contract from the institutions. That's the only way this is going to work. And I'm not I'm not opposed to guys making money. I'm not opposed to large amounts in NIL. These guys are, are worth a lot of money to these schools. But I do think that, you know, you combine where we are with the With the transfer portal, with the fact that all of these negotiations and everything, none of it is actually really based on a clear market change. A lot of things are (laughs) a lot of things right now are, are messy. And that's just the reality. And we saw some of that with with what happened on that front end from Florida State. Now, all that goes to say, so I led with, you know, kind of the bad news. But Florida State signed a really good class. That's the other thing is that that folks have forgotten. Florida State signed a really, really good class. They signed one of I mean, certainly a top five quarterback prospect in Luke Crumenhoek. So you're looking at what they're hoping is the future of the program at that position, and a guy who looks to be the kind of developmental prospect that that will fit exactly what they're looking for at quarterback. Huge deal. So you get a transfer portal guy that they're going to, they're going to land out of the portal as a one-year rental, as a guy who can get you over to Brock Glenn or Luke Krummenhoek and ideally Luke shirts this next year. And you've got some gap and then you're, you're in great shape at the quarterback position moving forward. Florida state has not been in great shape at the quarterback position in a long time. So that's number one. Number two, you get if not the best defensive back class in the country, certainly a top four or five defensive back class in the country, and I think you can argue it's the best defensive back class in the country with Charles Lester the third, Jamari Howard, Kai Bates. You got some guys that can really run and cover in this class, and that's not even including Ricky Knight the third, who I think is a really underrated and really good player. And we'll, we'll evaluate these guys more, more uh, in my traditional fashion later on, and I'm going to do some video analysis and all that, but you got some guys that can really play and good body types, guys that have length and speed. You're not going to run away from that group. Would it have been, been better with Bolden? Sure. Yeah, of course. But you got guys that are going to make you better in the back end. And then offensively, Landon Thomas at tight end is the best tight end, arguably the best tight end in the country, and certainly one of the best fits for what you do defensive or or offensively great prospect and a, a top prospect out of the state of Georgia. And then just the offensive recruiting class as a whole, you start to look at what they brought in cam Davis. I was talking to a a, a friend of mine who is a defensive coordinator in the, in the state of, uh, of Georgia who faced him multiple times. He's like, that dude is really, really good and he can fly very good prospect for a Mike Norvell offense. And and his, his take was, yeah, you know, you get a you get a guy, you get a couple of the guys that are on the roster, Rodney, Rodney, uh, leaving. you get some of these guys, Cam Davis may be better than him when he walks on campus and he's an early enrollee. That's a guy who can play next year. Potentially you get LaWayne McCoy. I have not evaluated him as much, but I do, I will say that I, I have someone that I trust who watched LeWayne McCoy faced Shamanad and said he was the second best player on that field and was amazing. Well, sign him up. then. So that's a really good player. Uh, Danzy, one of the fastest, if not the fastest prospects, one of the fastest prospects, if not the fastest prospect in the country. And a guy that basically is Toa Fili, but with home run, like top end speed. Elijah Moore, the six, just under six-5 wide receiver, fits perfectly with what they want at the nine position, at the uh, what essentially is a split end position, and I think is one of the best receiver prospects in the country, a guy that I think is very underrated. An outstanding offensive line class. several guys that are legit offensive tackle prospects. The days of not having guys who are natural offensive tackle prospects on your roster, those ended recently. And they've got some guys who are developing, and now they're adding depth behind that with guys that are offensive tackle prospects. Cam Fryer, BJ Gibson, these are guys that are going to be outstanding with the ball in their hands. And then you get to uh, Denaz White, 330-pound defensive tackle, and I can tell you, guys that go to, guys that come out of Concord, North Carolina, that's the best high school football in North Carolina, and he's a good player. Get a guy like Dee Holmes, 6'6, 250-pound defensive end who can who can move. Got a couple linebacker prospects who can actually run. Right. So uh Jamori Flagg, another good developmental defensive tackle prospect. This is a good class. It's a legitimate top 10 class. And the thing is, it's again, and this is my emphasis in the last couple classes. It's, again, a class that doesn't have a whole lot of guys that that you put in the depth category. You don't have a bunch of guys here where you're like, I'm just not sure about that take. This is a class with a bunch of guys that can contribute for you, that you expect to actually play for you as long as they stay on the roster and develop as expected. They did not reach for a bunch of guys to fill out the numbers. And that's something I got to give Mike Norvell a lot of credit for. They've done their, they've done a really good job of making sure that they're putting guys on the roster who are raising the talent level and are not just a guy. They're not just a guy that, well, you know, he's not real good, but we needed another guy at that position. Instead of doing that, instead of signing the, you know, sort of low level three-star or two-star prospect that, or, you know, doing what Miami did, getting to 29 guys where i think they signed uh i think they're up to 30 including uh including transfers you you look at you know what miami of florida did where they're at 27 uh high school commits florida state 22 and yeah florida state would have liked to have had at least one of those miami commits sure guarantee you miami would have liked to have had several of the ones on florida state's class but you know they've got 27 commits they got 14 three-star commits Florida State, 22 commits, and seven three-stars. Now, stars aren't everything, and evaluation matters. There are a couple of the guys that are three-star prospects in Florida State's class that are some of my favorite p- players in the class. Dinesh White is one of them. Ty Hilton, who is, I think, criminally underrated at offensive tackle. B.J. Gibson. These are guys I think are, are high-level players, despite being three-stars. So you can't just go by that, but it is a a decent metric. And when you fill out your roster, when you fill that out with a bunch of those guys toward the bottom end, those are guys that are probably not going to be on your roster in in two, three years. And if they are, they might be guys that you wish weren't. And FSU is not adding those guys. They're not adding a bunch of those guys. This is a pretty good class in that respect. And it leaves them space to be aggressive from here in the transfer portal. And that's where, you know, not Winding up getting a guy like Bolden, yeah, that's you, That that's unfortunate, and it hurts for all the people who are really involved in that recruitment and invested so much in in that for the last few years. That said, in the same way that Rayola going to Nebraska changed certain things for for Georgia, Florida State is going to be in position to be especially aggressive in the uh, in the portal from here. And there are some, there's some real talent that's going to show up in the portal, uh, in, in January. So, <laughs> and, and from here, just a little bit, just a little bit more. So there's, there's a lot of movement left to happen. And yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to belabor that, but I think this is a very good class. I think it does have some holes. I think the main thing is you would have liked to have seen, Honestly, I think Bolden hurts having an elite defensive back added to this class would have made it that much better. Obviously not getting Smith hurts, but you didn't, you weren't going to get him. I don't think based on, you know, at least hindsight, I think the guys that you didn't get that hurt the most are actually LJ who went to, uh, to Florida and, uh, and blunt who went to Miami. Those two are the ones because they're high end defensive line recruits. And that's really the place where you need to be signing high-end guys to be able to develop, to build long-term depth and to stack players there. Those are the two guys that I think you, you kind of feel the worst about is LJ McCray and and Blunt on the defensive line. Those are the guys where if you had to add two guys that Florida State had really, really pushed for, uh, I mean, obviously you'd add Smith first, but then beyond that, it's that one of those two defensive linemen. Those are where you know they, I think they still need to do a lot of work to stack that. But to me, the modern game in college football, the modern game, is the hierarchy of of talent and and the hierarchy of priority, where you need the talent the most is number one quarterback, and then number two, three, and four, and you can order these variously, but. I would I would order it this way, as defensive tackle, defensive end, and wide receiver. You have to have difference makers at those positions in order to be a championship team, as a rule. Now, if you are so good at defensive tackle and defensive end and wide receiver, then you can actually get away with not having an elite quarterback. Alabama's been there before. But by and large, you've got to have high quality quarterback play elite defensive tackle and defensive end play and wide receiver play in order to be a true competitor in order to be a true championship play uh, type team. And that's where, you know, ultimately you have to, to put your, your primary investment. So, so yeah, um, I'm going to go ahead and take a quick break and then uh, be back to answer a few questions. Okay. Actually, I've got a couple of these before uh, recruiting so I'm going to address them quickly. Uh, one is from Merrill Coleman uh, says, uh, what do you think the committee gave? Why do you think the committee gave Texas such a large jump that Oklahoma uh, defense, Oklahoma state defense is awful. 120th giving up 440 yards a game, including that beatdown from six and six UCF. So why did that happen? I think it's pretty simple. They needed to put Alabama in. And because Texas had the win over Alabama on their home field, they felt that they needed to, honor that head to head. And so they ha- if they were going to put Alabama in, they felt that Texas was tethered to Alabama. So they did what they needed to do and, and move them up. Honestly, I don't have a problem with Alabama being in. Alabama had either the second or third best strength of record in the country. Texas actually had a lower strength of record than Alabama's, even though they had the head to head. I don't have a problem with Alabama being in. I don't necessarily have a problem with Texas being in. I have a problem with either one of them being elevated over Florida State who had the third strength of record and ultimately had the best defense in the country going, coming down the stretch. That's where my problem is, but that's why they, they had Texas uh, go up on such a large jump. It was pretty straightforward. They were going to put Alabama in. If they're going to put Alabama in, they were going to put Texas in. If Georgia had beaten Alabama, Florida state would be in, in, in the fourth spot and you'd have the four undefeated. It's pretty simple. Number two, uh, with the committee showing its hand and clear bias, how many losses are Bama, Georgia, and Texas going to have next year to officially eliminate them from 12-team contention? It's almost like the team that doesn't make the conference title game and goes 11 and one or 10 and two will be in better shape for the playoffs. Uh, my my take is that any team in the SEC or the Big Ten that's 10 and two or better is going to make the playoff. So I think in the SEC or Big Ten they're going to ha- you're going to have to lose three games not to make the 12 teams. I think that's basically the the way it's going to work. Whereas in the ACC, one loss team who wins the championship is going to make it a one loss team, not in the championship, who does not win the championship that might be Florida state or Clemson would probably be in, but not necessarily. I think a two loss sec team or big 10 team probably goes over in that case. Maybe, maybe not in every case, but I think basically ACC teams have, You know, you can go 11 and one in the ACC. As long as you win the conference, you're going to be in automatically. If you go 11 and one and lose in the conference title game, you might be in. Uh, But I think two loss, Big Ten and SEC teams are going to be basically guaranteed. And everybody else is going to have to be one loss or better. Pretty straightforward. Um, All right. So now to more recruiting heavy stuff. Um, So, oh, actually, no, got one more. This one's from Chris Martinez. Uh, Jason, I agree with your a lot of opinions, but after Georgia, uh, Jordan Travis got hurt, uh, Florida State was not one of the best four teams in the country. Uh, you knew p- uh, part of having a good season is keeping Jordan Travis healthy, and we did not do it. The other four teams that got into the playoffs did it. Now, let's take a look back. Why, are, why were they running Jordan Travis against Northern Alabama? The play he got hurt, was that a read player? Or was he supposed to run? Okay, so several things here. Number one, I disagree. I do think that Florida State, after Jordan Travis got hurt, was one of the best four teams in the country, and it certainly was one of the four most deserving regardless. And I think for something like a playoff, you put the four most deserving in, and those are the four best teams. The four teams that have won, the team that have the strongest strength of record should be regarded as the best teams based on their results on the field. And until somebody beats them, that's that. I think that's pretty straightforward. Uh, Secondly, I think the Florida State team with let's say Tate Rodemaker at quarterback coming back from out of concussion protocol, and then you add uh Daryl Jackson to the defensive line, and you get healthier on offense, where all of a sudden Keon Coleman is not fighting the bone bruise as much. You get Johnny Wilson who's no longer dealing with the the stuff that he's dealing with, you get the offensive line a good bit healthier. And they were extremely banged up on the offensive side. You get healthy for the playoff, or healthier for the playoff on that side of the ball. Benson was banged up. You get healthier for the playoff on that side of the ball, and you add Daryl Jackson to the defense. I think that's one of the four best teams in the country. I would have favored that team over over Michigan. I don't think Michigan would have scored on that team uh, enough to to beat them. I think I think Norvell would have found ways to manufacture some points, and that would have been something like a you know twenty to. 20 to 17 type game, but I would have favored Florida state in that game. And I think you watch, uh, you watch Washington, Washington would have had a lot of trouble against that defense, the best pass defense in the country by quite a bit. And that defensive line would have given Washington's offensive line, a lot of trouble and Washington struggled at a lot of points this season. So, I mean, again, I I think there's a good reason to think that they could have scored enough on Washington's defense to at least uh, hang in there, uh, in that case. And, and again, I might've favored them against that Washington team. Uh, and then against that Texas team, I think that's pretty close to even and against Alabama, pretty close to even that same Alabama team that struggled a week before the sec championship game to, to beat a six and six uh, Auburn team. I don't think that Alabama team is clearly better than that Florida state team, which I think had a good bit better defensive line than that Alabama team. So uh, that would have been a war up front between Bama's offensive line and Florida State's defensive line, but I don't think any of those games are games where you're playing against an offense that's just going to be able to score a bunch of points against your defense. I think Florida State's defense would have kept them in all of those games, and I think in at least two of those games, they probably win. So yeah, I do think they were one of the four best teams. Uh, Georgia actually, I think was, I think Georgia is better than Alabama. They they did lose. I think there was some some luck involved there. And some bad luck involved there uh, in a bad call. But, uh, you know, if we're doing the four best teams, uh, then, you know, maybe Florida State isn't one of the four best teams. But if we're talking about the five teams that were actually in consideration, I think they're one of the four best there. Uh, If we're talking about the four best teams in the country, that's probably Georgia, Ohio State. uh, And then after them, and neither of them is in it. After them, you can kind of go between the the next five, which are actually in it, and and I think you could make a case for them, but uh, but I think Florida State had a strong case to be one of the four four best at that point, and I will never not be uh, upset or angry when I reflect on uh, the way that this season ended uh, because I think it was an injustice, and it, it's not really even about it being Florida State. I just think it's it's uh, it's sad that the game went that direction and that the committee made the decision that they did. Okay, now for the last few things, uh, having to do with, uh, with signing day. And this is before uh, we get into more specific evaluation stuff on, uh, on the next episodes that we'll do after this. Uh, so, uh, first question. And I got this question a lot from a lot of different people. Uh, who do you like better cam ward or DJU, and who is a better fit for the Florida state offense? (sighs) You know, that's a really good question. Um, And honestly, this is closer than I thought it would be when I, when I first went and started to evaluate those guys, uh, because I went in sort of biased against DJU, uh, because I'd seen him at Clemson and I, I I knew what his limitations were at Clemson. And I thought he was very poorly coached at Clemson, but I also got to see what he looked like at Clemson. And there were times where he looked pretty limited. Uh, then I went and I looked at what he looked like at Oregon state and went, Oh, wow, he really did blossom a good bit under better quarterback coaching. And Clemson was really poorly coached at quarterback for a few years. They just had some can't-miss guys before uh, DJ Uyunglele. But uh, I went and I looked at it and I was like, wow, he really he really did make some strides there. And he impressed me with the way that he drove the ball down the field, with the way that he was able to hit verticals, with a lot of tight window throws, uh, throwing throws where he had guys in his face, Did, uh, did a lot of things that I I thought were really good and generally protected the football. I mean, had seven interceptions on the year and, uh, and protected the football in the pocket. Didn't, didn't fumble it a bunch either. So, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of positives there and a guy that I think you can win with at Florida state in this offense because of how well he throws it on the verticals. You know, Mike Norvell likes to push the ball vertically, likes to run a lot of play action, likes to do a lot of things that, uh, that in RPO type stuff, things that DJ did well. And the other thing is that he brings a clear run threat as a 64 250 pound player where he can be a battering ram on quarterback power and that sort of thing in short yardage to make you a legitimately excellent player short yardage team, you know, in goal line, that sort of thing. So he brings a dimension to you that is that that's really nice in that area and made a bunch of good throws on the season. Then I went and I took a look at Ward and it's like, with Ward, I think you're getting a higher ceiling player, a guy that the thing that sticks out with Ward is over and over again, you watch him and he's making high level throws. He makes a bunch of off platform, just quick release, put it into a window type throw. He he just he he puts the ball on frame, consistently puts the ball out in front of his receivers so that they're able to run through it and uh, and and get yards after the catch. He he flashes elite accuracy at times. And, you know, you can see that by the numbers, his adjusted completion percentage is eighty one point zero. Uh, adjusted completion percentage that's really high I mean Dj is at uh is or I'm sorry uh Ward's total is uh 78 point seven adjusted completion percentage Dj's is 66 point nine so it's lower and a good bit lower now some of that is due to average depth of target I mean Dj's throwing this year his average average depth of target was eleven point seven yards per per target Ward through much uh through a lot more balls close to the line of scrimmage, averaged four four fewer yards per target in terms of how far down the field he, he was throwing the football than DJ. DJ pushed the ball down the field a lot. So eleven yard eleven point seven yards per uh per average throw in terms of how far down the field he's throwing versus 7.7 for Cameron Ward. So that's a four yard difference. Now Ward then has a 12 point difference in, in completion percentage, but some of that is due to throwing a lot more short, quick throws. So it's a little bit of a give and take there. Uh, I think Ward is a more talented thrower. I do. I think he, he flashed every throw in the Washington state offense. He made some just absolutely filthy throws off platform with pressure, you know, moving one direction, throwing the other, you know, putting a, put, tucking a ball into, into tight windows and all of this. And, you know, I thought overall he, he, he made some throws that were just, you know, NFL type, uh, just silly throws. And DJ does that, does that less often. He did have some, some real big time throws down the field, but more often from a cleaner pocket in terms of when he's getting that ward does a lot of things off of movement. Uh, and yeah, there, there were, you know, DJ on, on the season, you know, they had roughly the same number of big time throws. Now that's in fewer throws for DJ, uh, as graded by pro football focus, but you know, it's, uh, I, I, my impression watching the two of them is that, that ward has more overall, uh, talent in terms of arm talent in terms of being able to fit balls and, and do that off the move and those sorts of things. But the, the, the big flaw there, the big thing that, that you kind of look at there, uh, the thing that, that concerns me the most is Ward had 14 fumbles this season and DJ had two. You compare that to Jordan, Travis, Jordan, Travis had four. So DJ and and, and you compare the, you compare the numbers. DJ had, 2.6 turnover-worthy plays as a thrower. Jordan Travis had 2.1%. So elite, elite. If you get under two, under three, it's excellent. Cam Ward, 3.4%. He had a few more. And then 14 fumbles. And I think that's basically what you're dealing with. Is the primary difference is I think with Ward, you're dealing with a higher upside player who the ceiling on him is is, is crazy. You, you plug him into that offense, and if he's able to protect the football, you can put up, you, you, he can do some crazy stuff. He's more accurate than Jordan Travis was and brings a lot of other similar things to the table. But the concern is does he turn it over enough that, that that offsets it? I mean, one of the reasons that Florida State was so good the last couple of years with Jordan Travis is he just didn't turn the ball over. He consistently made the right decision in the right case, and he didn't fumble. And that goes a long way when you're in a good offense with good playmakers and you just distribute and you don't turn it over and you don't do anything stupid and you don't drop the ball when when you're hit. That, that goes a long way. And Ward has had a history of fumbles throughout his whole career. That's my concern. All that said, who do I prefer? I mean, I don't think there's a wrong answer here. Um, I don't think it's a situation where if Mike Norvell decides... To to take and, and by the way I think Norvell has the choice here from everything I've understood both of those quarterbacks will wait until Norvell decides which one of them he he wants both of them wanted to want, want to play at Florida State so if Mike Norvell decided to choose DJ Uyunglele I wouldn't have any any question about that I think what that means is that you are focusing on protecting the football and being able to drive the ball down the field to your big receivers to your playmaking receivers on play action and using RPO and, and using that aspect of your system while benefiting from the battering ram in short yardage. Totally understand that decision. Also completely on board. If he takes uh cam ward, because at that point you're saying, okay, he's going, he, he wants to score a bunch of points. He wants to open it up, open that offense up. in, in terms of passing, in terms of throwing the football, he wants a guy who, He's a little more escapable as a runner. Ward's more escapable as a runner, more of a scrambler when things break down than than DJ. DJ will get it out of his hands, but and and he's more of a designed runner. Uh Cam is not a designed runner. He's he's kind of an average athlete, but he's pretty good in terms of escapability and, and pocket sense. And I think he's better in the pocket in that respect. But I think if you take Ward, you're looking at, okay, you're gonna probably sacrifice a couple of turnovers, a few turnovers over the season, but you're banking on, we can teach this guy ball security. He's not going to fumble as much. We can teach that. We can coach the heck out of it. Ball security is going to be the emphasis, but we're going to get a guy that can, that can be the trump card when things break down. And ultimately banking on that guy, being a guy that can, that can get you to the playoff, not just distributing, not just doing a lot of things well, but be, maybe be the reason that you win the conference and and have a real chance in the playoff. I think the ceiling is higher with, with Ward. I think the floor is higher with DJ because of the turnover question. And because of some of the overall arm talent and just creativity aspects that you get from Ward. So that's, that's the short answer Uh, gone a little bit long. (laughs) Uh, A few other questions here. Um, (laughs) I got a lot of these. We've won 23 games in the last two years. Don't you think we should be better at recruiting high school prospects? Or Miami won seven games and have been dominating us in recruiting after a 19-game win streak. If that's not absolutely alarming, I don't know what that is. Thoughts on that statement? Uh, then why are we still having a hard time closing? Why can't we close in recruiting? So a lot of these things. First of all, I don't think it's accurate to say that Miami has been dominating Florida State in recruiting. Yes, they are ranked in final the final rankings in terms of overall points totals in the 24-7 composite team rankings. Miami is above Florida State, yes. But once again, the blue chip ratio matters. And Florida State took a much better overall class in terms of blue chip ratio. That's something that needs to be considered here. And, you know, that... Yeah, I I don't think it's it's a matter of Miami just flat out dominating Florida State on the trail. I don't think that's accurate. Miami had 30 total commits, including transfers so far. 30 total signees plus the three transfers that they've got coming in. 13 of those guys are blue chips. That's a 43.3 percent ratio. Florida State has 23, including tra- including Mario uh, uh, Marvin Jones Jr., who is uh, who's, who's the transfer, the loan transfer they've got so far. 16 of those are blue chips in the composite that's 72.7%. And I think we all know how the portal is going to go from here. So I don't think it's accurate that Florida state has not, has been getting out recruited, has been getting dominated by Miami. I don't think that's true. Now the close gives the impression of that. Sure. Miami closed better in certain respects than Florida state did, but Florida state had a better class going in. Now the place where, Miami did out-recruit Florida State this year's defensive line. Florida State needs to recruit better on the defensive line. And I got more questions about that. Why are we having such a hard time closing on the defensive line? This is the third year in a row that we can't close on defensive line recruits. That is a serious problem. And I do think that this is a place, and I got more questions about this too, this is a place where Mike Norvell is going to have to do some evaluating. He's going to have to evaluate his staff. He's going to have to evaluate what's going wrong in terms of front seven recruiting in general. They've got to be able to to bring in more high end high school talent, and they've got to be able to bring in, you know, just in general, get more talent on the roster from the recruiters on the on the front seven. And he's going to have to evaluate what what he needs to do there, in ter- in terms of that happening. So, yeah, uh, I, I do think that's the one place where there's some real concern. Back seven recruiting was excellent. Front seven recruiting was 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 good, but not excellent in this class. Too many, just not enough high-hanging fruit, not enough of the elite talent guys. All right, final few. Uh, when Jimbo came to FSU, he brought in many ace recruiters. Norvell has a lot of good developers. What do you think about this statement? This staff is full of developers. They've always been developers, but at a certain point, you need to bring in some recruiters to help balance that. That certain point is now. Okay, so I'm going to wrap on this. Um, my view... Is that with the current way that college football is going and with the transfer portal, with NIL and collectives being so important, having recruiters on your staff is less important now than it was five years ago. And it's definitely less important now than it was 10 years ago. One of the things you got to remember is that 10 years ago, even five years ago, the guys that were ace recruiters were half the time. Those guys were the bag men. They're the guys that, that handled that sort of thing pretty well. So your ace recruiters, your dogs, you needed those guys to help stock your roster. And once you stocked your roster with those high school guys, they weren't going anywhere. Transfer portal changed that. If your primary skill that you bring to the to the coaching staff, and this is true as a, as a head coach, this is true as, a, as an assistant, if your primary skill is being a high-pressure uh car salesman recruiter who can really close the deal. That's less valuable now than it was 10 years ago. And it's getting less valuable as we go. Because you can get those guys on campus. Maybe you can, maybe you, maybe you manage to get them and you get them on your campus and then they're gone two years later because you got to coach them. So that's a factor. The other thing is that, more important than having dogs on in terms of closing on the on the trail is having outstanding NIL collectives and other support elements in place to be able to attract those guys with that sort of thing. That's the role that the bag man used to play. That's it's just changed. I think now, more than ever having a staff that can coach and develop the guys you get on campus and keep them on campus if they're guys you want to stay on campus is more important now than it ever has been. So if anything, Jimbo's old staff of recruiters would be less valuable now. And I think we saw that at Texas A&M, by the way. They got a bunch of talent on t- uh, at Texas A&M and they weren't able to do a whole lot with it because they didn't have the developers. So what matters more now is having the developers who can evaluate, can make sure they get guys that fit, guys that are not going to leave, guys that are going to develop, and have sufficient talent at ceiling to be able to develop into players that are going to be really good in your system. That's more important now than having great recruiters, dogs who are closers. That matters more. If I have to choose between the two in today's game with the transfer portal, with NIL collectives and all of that, and all the different ways that that the support has changed if i have to choose between the two i'm choosing developers now that does not mean that mike norvell doesn't need to take a, a hard look at his staff and determine whether or not he's got developers who are good enough to compensate for some of their lack in some of those other areas and you have to ma- you ideally want to maximize all of it that's what he has to do and yeah, that's that I think that's where where you are now, if you have developers that can at least sell in the transfer portal, that can go a long way. So you know this this cycle is not over, and who they're able to pick up in the transfer portal is going to go a long way towards determining whether or not this was a fully successful talent acquisition process for not just next year but the year following, and each year is basically a whole new roster. It's so, a very different game than it used to be. Well, it's a pretty long hot takes here, but uh, I will come back with some more uh, specific stuff. I'll probably do each side of the ball separately in a in a future uh, podcast, and then I'm going to do some video breakdowns and all that uh, of, of different things of things that that stood out to me on on some stuff. But uh, that's going to come a little bit slowly. Uh, I've, I've got a lot of lot to do over the over the course of the next couple of weeks and all that, and I'll I'll do what I can to uh, to get that out. But these are my initial thoughts. This is my hot takes on the uh, on the cycle. By and large, I think Florida State fans should be pleased with the with the with the haul. It's not as good as what you'd like on in a couple areas. There are a couple things that you know, couple holes where one more elite defensive lineman, two more ideally, would be great. Uh, maintaining a you know one more elite player would be fantastic, and and you know, adding that kind of player. But this is a really good. Really good uh, uh, class. Like I said, it's 70, almost 73% blue chip ratio. It's not much to complain about there. It's a really good class and it raises the talent level on campus at Florida State with a lot of guys that can develop into really good players as they get, as they uh, get situated on campus and get developed by guys who can develop. All right, that'll do. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Post and repost episodes on social media and tell a friend. And if you haven't left a review in a while, do it again. It really does help the visibility of the podcast. Before we go, I'd also like to thank my advertising partners once more. That's EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage, serving Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky. You can also stop by the Unconquered shop at unconqueredpodcast.com where you can buy stickers, pins, magnets, t-shirts, and other swag. And thanks all. Also, to all those supporters over at Patreon where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast, I am especially grateful to those above the dynasty level that is, Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Neil Cook, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Dave Blair, Hector Cartagena, Jack Horton, Jimmy Van, Jonathan Kennedy, Keith Cheney, Lee Caswell, Tyler Kashishke, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. You all are far more generous than I deserve. I'm really grateful. Thanks to you all. This has been Unconquered with Doc Staples. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. I made this.